0: This podcast is brought to you by The Seat and chime. We are your hosts today, I am Lisa. And I am Bridget.
1: And in each episode so far, we have been looking at sharing stories
0: about individuals who have ties to Elizabeth and or her mission. Um, today, we're going to discuss the Civil War sisters. So, obviously, this is a little bit after Mother Seton's time, but I think you'll still see that influence from Mother Seton, which she began here in Emmitsburg, you know, lasting well into the war, past the war. Um, and we'll speak a little bit about the sisters here in Emmitsburg, but we're really going to concentrate on those missions that were sent out from here and their work through the war. Yeah. I'm
1: really excited about this because you know we're identifying. I'm going to share with you some special individuals who helped the sisters to be known for nursing, um, in addition to education. Um, you know, and then later responded to the unprecedented suffering and catastrophic conditions of the American Civil War in a multitude of ways. Um, because like really, back in 1809, the Sisters of Charity was mostly focused on education. Education, And then right. later, they had two parts to their mission.
0: Right, so when Mother Seton started it, she wanted to, it to include taking care of the sick and poor. Um, she did focus mainly on education, although they did charitable works here, visited people that were sick. She did send sisters up to Mount St. Mary's as early as 1815, um, but it was really after her death under the direction of sisters uh, Rose White and Mary Xavier Clark that they first entered into hospital work.
1: Yeah. So like between 1809 to 1841, the Sisters of Charity has done 11 missions so far. Uh, but really, it was in 1822 that they first entered in the hospital work under the um, sisters that you just mentioned, Rose White and Xavier Clark. Right. But we're going to really get into the Xavier Clark Right
0: now, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. So um, Sister Xavier, she was um, born in San Domingo. She had come here after her father's death um, and then had met her husband and married, but then both her child and husband passed away, and she ended up here in Emmonsburg in 1818. She uh, knew Mother Seton very well in just those last few years when Mother Seton was alive. She became her personal assistant, um, and they they became good friends, I believe. Um, And she became really well known, really well liked with the students. They said that she was a comfort to them and she was a very beloved teacher. Um, But she's the one that started the first religious formation um, nursing, teaching nursing. And um, it said that the first vocational nursing instruction for novices before they were sent on missions was um, started by her. So she began the first formal instruction.
1: And she had like a pocket-sized book of instructions for these sisters um, in their work with nursing, more of the hospital work. What was the name of right. that book so again? the book So
0: the book, well, it's translated from French, so okay. the English title is Instructions for the Daughters of Charity and the Other Religious Hospitallers, which um, was written about 1796. Wow. It was used by the Daughters of Charity with their work, um, taking care of the sick. Which so,
1: explained the reason for the French
0: title right, of which we're we'll giving you the English translation. Right, And okay. it was a small book, a pocket-sized book, like we said, that um, they could put in their apron or something like that and take with them. And so it was became two parts. The first part, was uh, the original book that was used by the Daughters of Charity um, during the French Revolution, Um, and it primarily focused on taking care of the soul of the person that was wounded or hurt. The second part of the book is called Instructions on the Care of the Sick, Um, and it's dated to October of 1846 but um, with Mother Xavier, well, she was Sister Xavier, then eventually becomes Mother Xavier, it was kind of like a work in progress. So she started writing it, and then she continued all the way up until it was published in 1846.
1: But it really is accredited to her, to Xavier Clark.
0: Right, the second part of the book definitely mm-hmm. is. It's what she used in those early instructions, um, like we said, starting in 1822. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it begins, um, With this quote, as we have, for the love of God, engaged ourselves in the care of the sick, we must be generous and do so with every possible care and attention. Our charity must be extended to all. All are the redeemed souls of our Savior. So it kind of, yeah, begins with that take care of every soul, of every person. And we'll continue to see that um, reminded to the sisters as they move forward with their hospital work that... There is no exceptions. You take care of everyone. Yeah.
1: It's sort of the same mentality that Mother Satan has. You know, Mother Xavier really taught as Mother Satan did by demonstrating in the simple acts of daily life, you know, how one could embrace the the Satanian, Vincentian Louisian tradition of the spiritual life and humble service to God by nursing others. Um, you know, that's more of a direct quote from Ms. Xavier about what she was trying right. to. Um, is still for others.
0: Right, and I think um, she didn't realize how important these instructions that she started, you know, um, would become, especially by the beginning of the Civil War by 1861. So between 1822 and 1861, they were working in hospitals. They were, where well, there was an epidemic that had come about, they would send sisters to help. But it really is with the Civil War where they are hugely impacted with so many people sick. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, it was, you know, very providential that she was able to get this started to have so many sisters educated. By the time we get to the Civil War,
1: now Mother Xavier did not live to see the Civil War. She did die here in Emmitsburg in 1855. However, there is another individual that became a Sister of Charity in 1829, and she did live through the war and provide a service. Um,
0: right, so that's Sister Matilda Koskery. Um, Like you said, she became a Sister of Charity, she started here in Emmitsburg, and um, what was said of her was that she was highly educated, extremely compassionate, and deeply devout. So for her to have the main focus of hospital work was not a surprise, I don't think, to anyone.
1: And probably certainly did not surprise Xavier Clark, Mother Xavier, Um, so she really was recognized for her work. In the care of the sick, the wounded, and the insane, among the Saint Sisters of Charity, Saint Joseph Community patients and ex- physicians um, in the area.
0: Right, right. And one sister wrote that she was an eye to the blind, a staff to the lame, a precious balm to the wounded heart. She wept with those who wept and rejoiced with those who rejoiced. Mm-hmm. And I think um, that just sums her up. Like she. She you know, goes on to basically be a nurse herself, but she also um, opens a hospital for the um, mentally insane that stays really until the 1970s. So she really began that work. Mm-hmm. Um, she wrote a book called Advices Concerning the Sick. I can going to say that she
1: also contributed details in how to, um, to work in regards to wounds and diet six rooms, cleanliness, yeah. and again, just the importance of kindness and caring for the
0: sick. Yeah, I mean, it, and she too left like these huge gaps so that as new research came, they could be filled in. Um, and, I, and I do think it's interesting. I mean, that is one of the things about the sisters that they wanted things to be clean and orderly, which I think um, bode well to their success with the patients. Um, they didn't know a lot about medicine. No one did then. Um, But their patients were living, and I think it came down to being organized and clean. And so she does devote time in that book to making sure people understand how important it is um, to be clean, to be organized. Um, But neither the Union nor the Confederacy expected the war to last beyond a few months. Um, In actuality, it dragged on for about four years, ending in April of 1865. There were over 600,000 men that died in the war, but over 400,000 of them were from disease, not um, bullets, not injuries in the war. It was all from illnesses. So conditions on the battlefields, um, most in the south, that's where most of the battles took place, were horrendous. Um, Wounded soldiers were left on the field sometimes for days with no shelter, little food or water, Um, scant medical attention, and military hospitals proved to be inadequate to the care of those in need. Yeah,
1: and so with the increased need to take care of the sick, the wounded, um, there were petitions that were starting to circulate requesting the sisters to come, who were the only set organization that actually had rules and guidelines that were very structured in their care for the sick so there was a lot of petitions coming here to Emmitsburg, specifically right. to father volando right. who was the director of the Daughters of charity here because by that time The Daughters of Charity had formed together with the Sister of Charity, St. Joseph, under one Federation. Right. So they're primarily daughters, and then he was the director.
0: Right. And yeah, and he was a Vincentian priest. And so wherever you see Daughters of Charity, there are Vincentian priests. That was kind of the deal between St. Vincent and St. Louis, that there would be a priest um, nearby. That way it ensured that they always had um, the sacraments taken care of. And so Father Volanda, like you said, was here. And so he writes um, two documents— One is to the places they're going, the hospitals or the makeshift hospitals. The other was to the sisters themselves. So the first list of conditions under which the sisters agreed to go and service somewhere was one, that no lady volunteers be associated with the sisters in the duties, such as an association would be rather an encumbrance than a help. I think that is basically saying, not that we don't want your help, we don't, you know, not value your help, it's more like we have a system, we have a way we work, we'll be more efficient if you just let us do it. Yeah. And so I think that was Father Volando kind of saying, you'll see, if you just let them do their job, they'll do it. Mm-hmm. Um, two, he asked that the sisters should have entire charge of the hospitals or ambulances. I think this is interesting, too, but I think it goes back to they're very efficient. They're going to order the supplies. They're going to keep things clean. If they have to listen to doctors or generals telling them what to do, they're not going to work the same way. Mm
1: -hmm. Now, at the same time, so he set these instructions for the sisters, and it seemed very um, active, you know, And you're thinking that sisters coming from a religious life. So just because he gives these instructions of of how-tos, basically, and what the requirements are, he does recommend that they still spend time on the virtues of humility, modesty, and charity.
0: Right. So that comes in in the the second letter. The second letter is a 12-page letter. It is not dated, um, but we assume it would have been around that same time in 1861 when they are first called onto the battlefields. And yeah, to them, it's more specific. Like, he's expecting that humility, that modesty, that charity. He's reminding him that the work which you are engaged in is God's own work. The poor sufferers whom you are endeavoring to relieve are God's own children. And are you not also the cherished children of God? So he's reminding them, not that they needed to be reminded, most likely, but he's reminding them, you are the same as anyone out there that you treat. You know, north, south, it does not matter. You need to remember that they're all children of God. And so he, through this letter, he also reminds them to keep up with their sacraments, to go to confession. And, and he's just trying to say, you have a responsibility. We're kind of letting you go out there on your own. Mm-hmm. We expect these things from you.
1: Yeah. And they became highly visible, too, um, as of going out and doing these acts. Right. Um, right. You know, like by the time they were called to the battlefields of Civil War, I think, you know, yes, they've been noticed, but really they became highly visible, especially because of the well trained skills in nursing. Right.
0: So. so by this time, there were a variety of Sisters of Charity. Mm-hmm. There were the Sisters of Charity of Nazareth, the Sisters of Charity of New York. Sisters of Charity of Cincinnati, the Sisters of Charity of St. Elizabeth, of New Jersey, and the Sisters of Charity of Halifax. So there were about, there's an estimate of about 2,200 women that were recognized as Civil War nurses. 20% of them were these Catholic sisters. So that may not sound like a lot, but considering that most people didn't want anything to do with Catholics yeah. or religious sisters, it's a huge number. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um,
1: because you know, wasn't like so you're saying twenty percent were probably more likely Mother Seton's sisters yeah. or the daughters of charity, but Mother Seton's sisters yes. as well yes. um, here in America.
0: Right. I mean, there were other orders, but it was really I I think through my research, it was really the sisters of charity and the daughters of charity that were so highly skilled and trained, and could immediately kind of step in, um. and and take it you know take over really. Mm -hmm. Um, The doctors and nurses, including the sisters, coped with terrible carnage um, of war on almost a daily basis for nearly four years. Besides the casualties on the battlefield, there were twice as many soldiers who died of diseases. Um, Most common were diarrhea, dysentery, scurvy, measles, malaria, pneumonia, smallpox, yellow fever, TB, all of which were highly contagious. And it was hard to keep them apart. I mean, they were really mixing soldiers that had been injured in battle with soldiers that were sick. Well, that's
1: because they were more dealing with disease Mm -hmm. than they were dealing with actual injury from battle, meaning from a bullet or from a source. You know, so what do you do? And there's only so much base. And
0: I don't think they understood how what a detriment that would be, you know? Yeah. And and so, I mean, there were surgeons that were just, thought that they only had a certain amount of time to perform a surgery, like a leg amputation. So they were using the same knives. They weren't washing their hands. They were doing these surgeries and then moving them right into someone that had smallpox right yeah. next to them. Didn't understand, you know, a weak immune system and things being contagious.
1: Yeah. Well, Sister Judy Mess, um, she's a Sister of Charity of Cincinnati. She wrote a book called The Sisters of Charity of Cincinnati in the Civil War, and she um, took some of these accounts that were written by the sisters probably years later, not during the time they were actually working, but there's this one which I think is great. Um, it was written by Sister Marie Emmanuel Strait, um, again, Sister of Charity of Cincinnati during the Civil War, who described the conditions in the camp. she said. Do you want to read that, or should I read that?
0: I mean, I can read it. Okay, so um, I'll let Lisa quote that. So. Um, because of insufficient ventilation, the lack of provisions for hygiene, the lack of plumbing, and at times even cots for the sick and wounded, epidemics flourished in military hospitals. Smallpox especially hit one camp after another, and then the men stood in terror of that scourge. Victims were often herded into isolated barracks and left without care until the sisters came. Sister Anthony O'Connell mentions in her diary walking into one such ward where a score of smallpox victims lay huddled together without ventilation or plumbing. The odor from their poor weeping flesh was so terrible she admitted that I did not think I could endure it. At another camp, she got wind of a plan to burn a tent and the unfortunate patient in it because the men assigned to work were afraid to approach a smallpox case. That's murder, she told the officers indignantly, and then volunteered to care for the man herself until his recovery. Yeah, so fear
1: and the disregard for the sick due to the fear was a huge problem that the sisters were facing, and they often themselves had to put their own fears aside and... in and charge in and and deal with that. Yeah, I mean, I
0: I can't imagine, like, you know, happening upon that kind of scene and having to just go in, like you said, and and clean these men up, Mm. and they're raging with fever, and they're contagious, and they're dirty.
1: Yeah, disorderliness, the lack of cleanliness, and they had to deal with... Trying to build something up in the midst of chaos right. and fear,
0: right? And yeah. and convince the people that they are the other soldiers that you know it's okay because they were going to kill this man for having smallpox. Yeah. So and that that did become a huge problem. They were dealing with with people that were afraid, which is a terrible thing to deal with. Um, So Sister Judy continues to write that care of the sick troops, however, provided only an initiation into the wartime horrors, which Sister Anthony and her companions experienced when they administered to the wounded. It was bad enough in the base hospitals. When she arrived at one such post, she found 17 amputees, some of them missing two or even three limbs, crowded together on a floor on dirty blankets with little medication to ease the torment of their bloody stumps. This was nothing in comparison to what they would encounter on hospital boats or in the battlefield. So this was just in a hospital. Yeah, that was the condition. Yeah, yeah,
1: you yeah. know, and they were in makeshift hospital as well as on the battlefield, and like on the boats and stuff like that. I don't know. I I would think that, in a way, how would I say this? In a way, you gotta honor these women because I think if I Imagine myself, and I say, I probably would want to cry yeah. because I wouldn't know where to begin. Right. It's overwhelming, and it's just it's, like you said, it's just a a, a terrible, terrible scene. Yeah, I mean, and it's day it. after day,
0: yeah. it's in heat with the habit on, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, and um, and they've got to be afraid, yeah. you know. Um, but I think, you know, kind of getting back to mother's seat and just having that strong faith with the death that she faced, knowing that her children. Her sister-in-laws, her fellow sisters, were going to have that privilege to go to heaven. I think the sisters kind of thought that same way that if I die during these acts of charity, then so be it, you yeah. know, and we're okay with that, and that's yeah. kind of the mindset that they had. Yeah,
1: and they were not at all immortal of uh, going in and um, dealing with these patients, you know, treating the care or treating the sick. Um, those affected with disease, because in the Sister of Charity of Nazareth, there would be five sisters that would have died as a direct result of the tireless service um, right. in, do, in working with the soldiers that right. were succumbed by disease.
0: Right, so that's an interesting point. So there weren't any sisters that died from like gunshot or bullets. Um, but there were sisters that died from these illnesses Mm -hmm. and, and starting with the Sisters of Charity of Nazareth, like you said, there would be five that would die. Um, and one of the first to die was a Sister of Charity from Nazareth, and that was Sister Mary Lucy Dosh. Um, she was assigned to nurse typhoid patients and while performing her duties, um, she died on December 29th of 1861. So she was the first sister that we see die. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting about her, we mentioned her in our
1: Civil War Sister Exhibits as well. She had gotten military honors in her funeral.
0: Yeah, which I I find very interesting. Um, I mean, it was the very beginning of the war, and I think that there was that respect for sisters, but also nurses. And so, yeah, when she dies, her casket is carried on a U.S. gunboat. Um, called the Peacock, up the Ohio River to Uniontown, Kentucky, under a truce, and was escorted by six Union soldiers and six Confederate soldiers. So I think it's kind of lovely in a way. Kind of wish it had continued, <laughs> or maybe they would have stopped the war. But um, it's it's just nice that they took that time to honor someone who had passed away trying to help them. Mm-hmm. You yeah,
1: know. and even during the time, like this is the impact that sister Lucy Dosh had like even during the time it was noted there was accounts noted by others saying that Sister Lucy sang softly as she worked in a hospital and that she ate less food so patients could have more and at Christmas she decorated the hospital's fever ward with streamers to remind the patients of home like she again was really upholding the importance in the care of sick like just nurturing the the emotions and the spirituality, not so much of actually treating the symptoms, you know, it was a little bit of both. Right,
0: trying to give them a little Mm -hmm. bit of spirits during Christmas time. And if you um, heard, she died on December 29th. So she was very sick and got herself up to to decorate and to make the patient feel better right up until the moment of her death.
1: So again, you know, Sister Lucy really is that example of the tireless, efforts of these sisters working through their own sickness, through their own fear, through their right. own exhaustion. Right. They were still yeah. up every day and doing the best they can and following the instructions in place. Right,
0: right. Um, I mean, truly, like, living Mother Satan's mission, taking yeah. care of the sick and the wounded, doing that charity work um, without hesitation. I mean, just every day. So this was more down in the South,
1: but you know we do have the Sister of Shady of New York. Um, now, there wasn't any real-known battles up in New York, but the work there was very much a need.
0: Yeah, um, because what would happen a lot of times is um, after a battle, the soldiers would be shipped back to where they were from. So they were sending. Um, wounded soldiers, six soldiers, back to New York. Um, Archbishop Hughes was in charge of New York at the time, New York City especially, and he would not give the Sisters of Charity permission to leave New York. A lot was going on in New York at the time besides the war. Um, there was a lot of conflict with the Irish and stuff going on, and he was heavily involved in that, trying to get them um, homes and jobs and things. So he didn't want the Sisters to leave.
1: But don't they take their own home, which was called Mount St. Vincent, and they actually turned that into a hospital?
0: Yeah, I mean, that's a great story, too, Um, which actually Sister Judy told me when she was visiting (laughs) here. Um, That was the original mother house for the Sisters of Charity when they went to New York, and then the um, city was like, oh, you have to leave. We want to make this a park, which became Central Park, and then you know, 40 years later, when they want them to start this hospital, they're like, oh, we have a great house for you. It's down by the park. <laughs> it's the same, same house that they've never really put to use, but the Sisters of Charity do. And they start this military hospital, St. Joseph's Military Hospital. Um, and so when the War Department kind of asked them to do this, the bishop was kind of like, okay, I'll, I'll let you start a hospital as long as it's here in the city. Um, and I can keep the sisters close by. Okay. So by October of 1862, St. Joseph's Military Hospital is opened. 15 sisters are assigned to meet the first 120 sick that arrive. Um, They were New Yorkers for the most part. They came in um, by train from the battlefield hospitals, um, but there was an immediate need. I mean, they're almost at capacity the moment they open. Like they had um,
1: like a plan before the first patients started arriving. However, um, they end up having to again. They were it wasn't just amputees that they were dealing with our flesh wound. They really were dealing with the contagious diseases, right. and they end up having to start. Erecting isolation tents on the ground right outside of mount st right. hospital
0: right which this kind of told me like two things one if if they're going to have a hospital only for amputees it's like how many amputees were happening you know what i mean like people were losing limbs constantly they didn't really know how to deal with that i think so and because they were doing so surgeries like i said previously so quickly It was more like, uh, I can't even, I don't even attempt to save this leg, just cut it off. So they had anticipated having hundreds of amputees and then all of a sudden they're getting lots of sick people too. But also the fact that they, they put up tents to separate the different kinds of sickness, Mm -hmm. like that was their wisdom and, you know, to not mingle the people that were sick because a person can't take on too much. You can't get mm-hmm. sick with too many things before you're going to die. And yeah. I think they might have done that because for their own organization, mm-hmm. but it was providential. I mean, it worked yeah. out definitely to their benefit.
1: But here again, you know, they were really working around the clock. They even have four surgeons from St. Vincent that were providing pro bono services at the hospital. Um, And again, but not only were they just focusing on these soldiers. They also still had care of like orphans and children and the elderly and the pa- and other patients at St. Vincent's. So it wasn't just an exclusive focus to right. these soldiers. They still right. were doing things they were doing prior to their arrival, and they right. had up keep on them. I mean,
0: they still had St. Vincent's, which was the main hospital um, in New York that they were taking care of. And now they had this second hospital that they're dealing with. So they still have their original patients and these new patients. And they're still trying to do all the things that Archbishop Bishop Hughes wants to do with education yeah. mm-hmm. and helping the poor Irish. Yeah. Um, so they were doing housekeeping chores and distributing
1: supplies, dressing wounds, dispensing mm-hmm. medication, and again, trying to keep the cleanliness and everyone fed. Um, and then they even found themselves actually in surgery too, trying right. to help with that. Right. I just, again, it just like their skill level to be able to do this day in, day out, is really astonishing um, compared to today. Um, Although there are probably nurses out there that are resonating to the work here to what they're doing now. Especially
0: what we've experienced as a country, especially in New York, what New York Mm -hmm. experienced. Um, But the Surgeon General um, and many generals and commanders um, were very taken with the sisters. They liked Mm -hmm. having them because they were worker bees. Um, And the Surgeon General actually said that... um, they were the only women with hospital and administrative experience, knew how to follow orders, worked quietly, did not complain about the food or the accommodations, and did not waste time consorting with the soldiers. So they were focused on their work. <laughs> they were trying to find a husband. <laughs> yeah. But they
1: were, um, you know, while well, there was an unspoken ban against evangelizing, the sisters were providing the spiritual comfort and they were encouraging the dying to seek God's forgiveness. And it turns out there were some that were wishing to be baptized and wanted to prepare the you know, the death for religious burial. So they helped them with that. Um Yeah, and that
0: was something that was very important, I think, that they were told by Father Volando don't Push your faith on people, yeah. but kind of be there for them if they if they wanted. And to their surprise, they did find that a lot of these soldiers wanted to be baptized, they wanted to learn more and talk with the sisters about faith and God. And and so that was they were very pleasantly surprised by that. And that became a big part of their mission just to sit and, and talk to them, write letters for them. Um, and, it, and bring that comfort that we talk about. And they weren't impatient about it. They would sit with soldiers for a long time and not feel like, okay, I can't talk to you anymore, I need to move on. They yeah. were just very patient.
1: Yeah, in fact, one of the um, Surgeon Generals, Charles McDougall, um, years after the war, um, was known to say you know, that he, he he had military hospital under his supervision, but he was known to have said that St. Vincent was the only one that never gave him any trouble because he said peace reigned there. Right. So again, it's going back to what the sisters felt compelled to do in their work, right. and their work in for God and in for humanity. Right. So. They
0: were definitely not a problem. They were a help. They didn't get anxious. They didn't get angry. Um, They just, when there was a need, they picked up and did it. And so it did provide peace. It provided something that the doctors didn't have to worry about. Mm -hmm. They took on all these chores and were so good at it. They didn't have to be supervised. Right. Um, And
1: there were some more stories that came from oral tradition. Um, Like, for example, the riots that broke out in July of 1863 in New York City. Right. Um, I'll let you tell that story.
0: <laughs> so these were um, the riots, predominantly by Irish men, um, because there was, if you could come up with $300, you could buy your way out of the draft. And the poor Irish really felt like this was against them. There was no way they were going to get that $300 to buy their way out, and yet the wealthier people in New York were doing that, so their sons weren't going to war. Um, but the poor Irish mostly were going to have to. And so they, there were these riots that started happening and there was a lot of damage done to the city. There was killing and looting and destroying property. Um, and there was a rumor that started happening that they were gonna go to St. Joseph's Hospital and burn it to the ground. And so- take right? No, the St. Joseph's Military Hospital. Oh, okay, okay, sorry. Um, And so the Surgeon General, he contacted the sisters and he's like, you need to leave, just pack up and leave. I don't want anything happening to you guys. Um, But Sister um, O'Reilly, she refused to leave. And more so when they started charging up these rioters With, I can't even imagine what it would have been with them. Um, I picture them with the, you know with their battle axes and their fire. <laughs> and, whatever, yeah. um, and she went out to them. Now, there's no record as to what she said to them. Mm-hmm. She went out to greet them, and they turned around and left. <laughs> well,
1: given her name, Sister O'Reilly, I think it was Irish meaning Irish in a right. way. And, and again, I think that the reputations of these sisters and their work is starting to precede them and the respect
0: respect that they had um, from everyone really like you couldn't deny what they were doing yeah and so why would you destroy that and then and i'm sure they were taking care of some irish patients too so Mm -hmm. i would love to know what she said but i think i think there was a mutual respect there Mm -hmm. and and so Yeah, and so they they never came back again. They never threatened the hospital again. Okay,
1: Um, and and then another little upbeat story related to Sister O'Reilly was to ask and receive permission to prepare a Thanksgiving feast for the wounded (laughs) patients. Like at first, it wasn't a real keen idea. It wasn't favorable, but then she got the permissions and she just pulled out all the stops.
0: Right. Right, so she spent um, their whole food budget for a quarter, <laughs> for three months, um, and on this one meal for these soldiers, um, and she was reprimanded for it. She was reprimanded, And she yeah. was told never to do it again, but she was kind of like, well, they had a great dinner, they're never going to yeah. forget. So and,
1: and there are men that in years afterwards, they recall that account, right. and they don't forget that day, right. and I think, again, it's... It's going back to not just nursing the physical, it's nursing the spiritual and, right. and, and giving peace. Right. They it needed a really the
0: morale boost. They yeah. needed, you know, some positivity and they were hungry, you know. And so she's like, okay, we may starve for the next two and a half months, but they deserve this. And so, yeah, I mean, I think they did know. They did know exactly like Mother Seton did. They knew exactly what people needed and fulfilled that need. Mm-hmm. You know? And
1: Sister O'Reilly herself, she actually became known as the Irish Nightingale.
0: Right, yeah. right. So there was a, um, a tower that was part of this hospital that the sisters would have the, the younger boys, the ones that were the, the flag bearers or the drummers. You know, sometimes these boys were as young as 12, 13 years old, and they would travel along with the soldiers. They were out in front you know, carrying the flags and doing the drumming. And um, they would separate them because these young boys would cry sometimes and they would miss their families and miss their parents. And, um, and they wanted to have them separate. And so they would put them separate and then they would use, um, they would bring them cookies and candies and things like that and do those special treats for them. So peace did indeed reign at St. Joseph. Yes. So um, we'll continue with the Sisters of Charity of um, Cincinnati. They did not have it um, so easy as they did at St. Joseph's Military Hospital. Um, they began in May of 1861, right around the same time that the Sisters began their mission um, here in Emmitsburg. Uh, really very quickly, a month after the war started at Camp Dennison, which is very close to Cincinnati, There were over 12,000 men that were serving there, training there for the Union Army, and a measles epidemic broke out in the camp. So men were dying in very large numbers. Wow. Yeah, and that's when Archbishop Purcell and the mayor of Cincinnati at the time, George Hatch was his name, they went to Sister Anthony O'Connell that we mentioned earlier, and they asked for help. They were pretty desperate, I think, at this point.
1: I am so glad that you're introduced Sister Anthony O'Connell. She is, a, or was, a very prominent leader for the situation of of Cincinnati during the Civil War. Um, she had done a lot of work, and um, she actually was probably one of the few sisters that really did take detailed accounts of what their day-to-day was like, what they were going through, not just the soldiers. Account, but for themselves as a sister, you know, what their life was like. So this is, again, it's all in Sister Judy Mess's book.
0: And then they take the railroad along the um, Miami River and um, to the camp, but they don't stop there. They continue through um, the South. They go to Maryland, they go to Tennessee. They just start kind of going wherever they're needed.
1: This is really kind of the first time where we're really seeing the sisters moving in a direction of, you know, beyond the line, you know, they're in the right. north and the south, right. they treating all alike, it didn't matter what side you were on, they were focused on, this is where we're called to go, right. this is where we're going, these right. men, these persons. The right. individual need right. their support. You know,
0: like Father Blondo said, like they, this is the soul. When you look at them, you look at Christ and you see, see Him in every person. And they really believed that. So even though they had started with the Union Army, they ended up helping on both sides, um, especially the prisoners of war. They really tried to help them and wanted to make sure that they were being treated fairly. Yeah. um they did have some interesting encounters though because as they traveled into the south and the midwest a lot of the young soldiers had never seen a sister before so they didn't mm-hmm. they've never seen someone in a habit of any kind so um, yeah. they uh, according to sister judy they were not comfortable with it at first they called them holy marias um and a whole lot of other not nice names, Um, but it didn't take long. I mean, when they started to see their kindness and their work ethic and how uh, they would continue to treat them fairly, no matter where they were from or religion they were from, Mm -hmm. um, they started to win these boys over.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, even um, this was evident in one of the diary entries of a Union soldier who was treated by Sister Anthony O'Connell. Um, on a hospital ship that was anchored in the Tennessee River. And he says something to this effect. Now, this is after the bloody battle of Shiloh that happened in April of 1862. So she said, Amid the sea of blood, she performed the most revolting duties of those poor soldiers, he wrote. She seemed like a ministering angel, and many a young soldier owes his life to her care and charity. I mean, it's it's pretty powerful when in the midst of all this, there's something very angelic, right? Of the presence of right, peace.
0: and that's kind of where they adopted the name angels on the battlefield, mm-hmm. um, because they were willing to go right out onto the battlefields and help these soldiers who otherwise would have laid there and died alone, mm-hmm. you know. And they were willing to do it. And um, Sister Anthony wrote again about Shiloh that. Um, as they were on the floating hospital. She said, we just kept moving further up the river, being unstate, unable to bear the stench from the bodies that were dead on the battlefield. So they were trying to get these men that they were trying to help away from the battlefields so they're not kind of reliving it. And so they're moving up the river as they're trying to treat them.
1: Yeah, so we had two accounts, one from a soldier, and then, of course, Sister Anthony. And they're, they're very different, you know, right there. they, they are. Sisters are telling us what they're seeing, what they're witnessing, targeting all their senses. And meanwhile, you get a sense of hope, of peace from the soldiers' entries, which is very different, a vast difference.
0: Um, Yeah, I mean, um, there's an account of um, one poor fellow whose nose had been completely shot off and was nearly missed by the stretch bearers. When found, the young soldier was placed in a hog pen, the only place of shelter remaining. Um, And the sister writes, before he could be brought on the boat, he had lost blood enough, one would think, to cause death. His clothes were saturated and the blood even reached his boots. So again, to give you that visual, I mean, these sisters were charging right in with bodies that were torn apart. You know, and it didn't shun them away. Like they went right in, no matter how bad they smelled, no matter how bad they looked, and they were willing to take care of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Now, if we go a little bit more towards the East Coast, the Sister of Charity of Saint Elizabeth, which is located in New Jersey. Um, Again, this is another sought-after community of women religious by James Roosevelt Bailey, who was a nephew of Elizabeth Ann Seton,
0: and he was the first bishop of New York. Right. Um, And, I mean, as we learned in Margaret George's podcast that we did, that he insisted that the sisters be trained by Margaret George, who was of Cincinnati, because she knew his aunt, Elizabeth Seton, and he wanted them to be trained the same way. He wanted it instilled in them to be charitable, um, to be kind, to, to look at every person the same. And so when he started the order, it was 1853, so it's pretty close to when the Civil War started. Yeah, yeah. Um, they weren't very big at the time. You know, there weren't a lot of sisters there, um, but they kind of jump right in, yeah. and they um, kind of do a makeshift hospital right there at the, at the train station. Um, getting those soldiers that are coming up from the south that have been injured.
1: Yeah, and again, they're extending themselves personally to the sick, the poor, the dying, the orphan, the bereaved. Basically, in short, to all those that were in need. So right, right there in New Jersey.
0: Right, and they—I mean—they eventually started to get recognition for that. Um, Lincoln, President Lincoln. Um, He wrote, of all the forms of charity and benevolence seen in the crowded wards of the hospitals, those of the Catholic sisters were among the most efficient. I never knew whence they came or what the name of their order was as they went from cot to cot, distributing the medicine prescribed and administering the cooling, strengthening draughts as directed. They were angels of mercy. How oftentimes I have seen them exercise pain by the presence of their words." So, again, he's, he's speaking to how they took care of the soldiers, but also how just that kindness made them feel better. Yeah.
1: I mean, like you already said, these sisters really started becoming known as angels at the battlefield, up and down the east side to Midwest of the United States during the American Civil War. Um, They were compassionate care to the sick and the wounded on a battlefield, an ambulance, makeshift hospital, hospital transport, Um, and they gave dramatic witness to their confession of the faith that they quietly and humbly carried out the mission of Charity as Civil War nurses. Right, Um,
0: right, and um, by 1850, um, Mother Seton's community here in Emmitsburg had merged with the Daughters of Charity, so there were daughters here. And there was a lot happening here, too. They were missioned out um, very early, but here on the grounds, right before, the week before the Battle of Gettysburg, we had soldiers camping here. And so that's kind of where we invite you to actually come here and walk the grounds and hear those stories um, from those sisters who, who lived it here.
1: Yeah, because really, these sister stories, their account, you're not going to really find them in the history books. It's like they're hidden from the right. history book. And there's actually another hidden jewel, as we call it, down in Washington, D.C., um, that is managed by the National Park Services. Right. And it's a monument for the nuns of the battlefield.
0: Right, that's what it's called. And it's interesting because um, even though we have those letters and those notations from like President Lincoln and the Surgeon General and all these mayors and everything that are recognizing the sisters and the soldiers themselves, by the time we get into the early 1900s, by 1914, actually, a woman named Ellen Jolly wanted the sisters to be recognized, and she wanted this monument built, and they pretty much told her, we have no record of the sisters helping at all, which uh-huh. is quite astonishing, I think, Mm -hmm. Um, and so she took it upon herself to do um, lots of research, and she had people that were helping her do it, and she gathered all this research, and she took it um, to the War Department, um, who said, okay, um, we will build a monument. Um, We will allow a monument to be built, I guess, but we're not paying for it. (laughs) So (laughs) she kind of had to start all over again, um, getting, raising the money, um, it cost about $50,000 at that time, which was a lot of money, uh, but she thought it was important. I think a lot of people thought it was important. Yeah. Um, it was finally completed um, March 29th, um, 1918, um, and it was right around the time that we know um, there was like only a few sisters still living that were able to actually see it. From uh, um, so, um,
1: the Civil War. From um, yeah.
0: the Civil War, so um, that was nice.
1: Yeah. And there's two inscriptions on the monument. Um, one states, they comfort the dying, nursed the wounded, carried hope to the imprisoned, gave in his name a drink of water to the thirsty.
0: Right. And the second one reads, to the memory and in the honor of the various orders of sisters who gave their services as nurses on the battlefields and in hospitals during the Civil War. So if you haven't seen it, it's to me it's very... It's worth seeing. Um, It's a beautiful monument. Um, It recognizes people that were willing to go anywhere to help another person live and be more comfortable and and not be afraid and be comforted. Um, They were willing to do that in the midst of battle. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. So there were yeah the sister of charity of Saint Joseph is represented. Carmelite, the Dominican Order, Ursuline. Sisters of the Holy Cross, Poor Sisters of St. Francis, Sisters of Mercy, Congregation of the Sisters of Our Lady of Mercy, Daughters of Charity of St. Vincent de Paul, Sisters of Charity of Nazareth, Sisters of Providence of St. Mary of the Woods, and the Congregation of the Divine Providence are all represented in right. this um, yeah. monument, which is you know, called Nuns of the Battlefield. Um, I would like to take a moment to clarify the that there is a difference between a nun and sister, even though nun and sister is used interchangeably. Right. Um, Traditionally, nuns are members of an enclosed religious order, and they take a solemn vow for life, you know, and they live a very contemplative life. Where sisters, on the other hand, the Sisters of Charity St. Joseph that Mother Seton founded back in 1809, and that um, even the Daughters of Charity from Paris, France and then came over to the United States in 1850s, they live a much more active life. They do not live a papal enclosure. Their vows are simple vows that they renew annually. Um, so they're kind of considered living a life that is very apost- apostolic, mm-hmm. very active. Um, they're still devoted to prayer. They're still you know, taking vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. But these sisters have ministry that takes them out into the world right. to serve God's people. Um, and again, you know, it covering anything from teaching to social work to retreat, healthcare, nursing, especially right. during the time of war. Um, yeah, and
0: I think um, we just touched on some of the stories, some of the things that... Um, We've heard about that you can read about, you can certainly visit these places. Like we've said, please come here and walk the grounds and hear more stories. Um, I think that they continued, these sisters continued to carry on what Mother Seton started. You know, it wasn't necessarily the education, but it was the compassion and the charity work and seeing every person as an image of God and, and wanting to help them. Not like this is my job. But having that desire to help them.
1: Yeah. It's like they just their effort and everything they do is for the love of God right. and for the love of humanity. Right.
0: Right. So it's beautiful. And and you see Mother Seton just continues through all these sisters. Yeah. yeah.
1: Well thank you again for joining us today on the podcast about the Civil War sister stories. We do invite you to come again to our grounds where we do have the Civil War Sisters tour, we have an exhibit, so look to our website for dates and times and when you can come visit. Um, So are we, but before we go, what do we? So we have, uh,
0: yeah, we have coming up um, Sister Anthony O'Connell because even though she um, was so important in the Civil War and we've talked about her quite a bit here, there was a lot more to her. And so we really want to delve into her and get her full story. Yeah, definitely. Thank you, Lisa. Okay, well, thank you guys for
1: joining us. I hope you have a lovely evening. Thank you.